Spread the love with WMFA merch, items designed to spark creative vibes for you and the artists in your life. Shop at WMFAPodcast.com slash merch. That's WMFAPodcast.com slash M-E-R-C-H. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Carter Sickles, whose latest novel, The Prettiest Star, is out now from Hub City Press. I mean, I'm fascinated with stories about family and home and kind of what that looks like for a queer person and how complicated that is to sort of navigate. Carter is also the author of the novel The Evening Hour. He's the recipient of the 2013 Lambda Literary Emerging Writer Award and has been awarded scholarships to Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Swanee Writers Conference, VCCA, and the McDowell Colony. His essays and fiction have appeared in various publications, including Guernica, Bellevue Literary Review, and BuzzFeed, and he is the editor of Untangling the Knot, Queer Voices on Marriage, Relationships, and Identity. Carter is Assistant Professor of English at Eastern Kentucky University, where he teaches in the Bluegrass Writers Studio Low Residency MFA program. Set in a rural Ohio town in 1986, The Prettiest Star tells the story of Brian Jackson, a 24-year-old queer man dying of AIDS. The disease has already claimed Brian's boyfriend, many of his friends, and life as he knew it in New York. As his health declines, he returns to his hometown and to his parents and younger sister, Jess, for the first time since he left six years before. Determined to document his story, Brian is rarely without his camcorder. His passages are written as monologues delivered to the camera. Carter also writes from the perspectives of Brian's mother, Sharon, and Jess, as they grapple with his return and what it means about their lives and beliefs. It is that sort of black sheep story as well, and that so many of us um, feel as artists or writers or who leave our homes, especially from small towns, rural places, and, and move to cities. And it's so hard for many of our families to even conceptualize like what our lives look like and why we would do that. Right? The Prettiest Star is about Brian's homecoming, but the novel's complexity and nuance defy summary. Brian's parents love him, but they still live in denial of both his queerness and his illness. His younger sister is confused, resentful, and very much a teenager. The townspeople range from quietly judgmental to openly hostile, with few exceptions. Carter's storytelling is sure and thoughtful. He writes with empathy, but no one gets let off the hook. Brian finds comfort, but not from everyone, not even from both of his parents. There is some redemption to be found, but it's not easy, and it's not for everyone. As the town's prejudices swirl around him and his condition deteriorates, Brian keeps showing up, asking to be seen. The novel's title comes from the David Bowie song of the same name, a tune Brian and Jess used to listen to when they were young. Bowie is a spiritual presence in the book, a symbol of unapologetic individualism, gender nonconformity, and brazen sexuality. Proof that there is a place for people whom mainstream society don't want to accept. Here, we talk about writing poignancy without sentimentality, and about the importance of documenting queer rural narratives, especially those from a generation decimated by the AIDS crisis. We also talk about activist art and collective memory. At WMFA's Patreon page, Carter and I discuss the craft of writing death and dying. You can hear this and other bonus segments by visiting patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. Hi. 
I first want to congratulate you on such a gorgeous book. And I really am excited to talk to you about everything that went into it. Um, there's so much rich material here in terms of the subject matter and the writing techniques. And I'm, I'm just really excited to dive into it with you. Um, and I was lucky enough a few days ago to be at your virtual launch party, um, which was a really beautiful event. Uh, and you said a few things there that, that I would love for you to talk again about here, starting with kind of where the real world inspirations for this book came from and kind of how long you, you know, you've been sitting with those germs that, of the idea that led to the book. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here. And um, I, I love your podcast. So I'm happy to be here. So yeah, I think the impetus for the novel was um, a memory I had from, I grew up in the eighties, a memory I had from being uh, a kid and a teenager during that time, which was watching uh, Oprah Winfrey. And she did an episode on a man in West Virginia who had returned to his small town and he was gay and he had AIDS and he went swimming in the public swimming pool and was kicked out and the pool was drained and he was barred from returning. I remembered watching that show and it sort of stuck with me for reasons I didn't uh, understand. And so I keep a notebook of novel ideas and story ideas. And that was one, a man who returns home who was gay and uh, dying of AIDS in the 80s that kept sort of showing up in my idea list. And um, so I started writing actually from Jess, who's the younger sister, from her perspective, and then Brian, who's the, the main character, from his perspective. And I just, I wasn't sure if it would have legs for a novel or if it would be uh, more of a short story, but the characters kept calling me back. And then I engaged with other characters um, and kind of created the setting of the town and it kind of grew from there. But yeah, that was the impetus for it was this um, true story about this man who um, returned back to his hometown in West Virginia. There is an episode of Oprah that I found later where she go, returns to the town because she did this sort of town hall and he has, he has died of AIDS and she kind of connects with people who were on the show the first time. But I should say with that first show, when I was a kid and watched it, and then went back when I was working on the novel to do research and look it up. Um, one of the reasons I think it stuck with me is because it's like all of the town members from the town are on that show. So it's about 100, 200 people. And they are just sort of vitriolic and hateful. And he is there you know, someone says AIDS will eradicate all gay men, you know, and everyone in the audience applauds. And it's just so painful uh, to watch. So I think that stuck with me. And I think the other thing that stuck with me was it was a, probably one of the first and only times I saw a gay man um, who was out of the closet, who was from a small town on TV, who was very proud and out and brave. And I think that stuck with me in ways I couldn't understand or articulate when I was young. But now reflecting on it, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you said something at the launch that was really powerful to me, and I jotted it down in this idea of, um, you know, you're talking about this this kind of generation, this whole generation of gay men that was lost to the AIDS crisis. And you said, um, these were people who could have been my mentors. And I think that's such a poignant idea because you know, as you say, and and obviously I'm not, you know, I don't identify as queer. I'm not coming from that background, but I did grow up in a small town and the attitudes that you're describing are pretty familiar to me. And, and so I do in my own ways with different 
different ways that I've chosen to live my life, I definitely have had that thought, like, what would it have been like to have someone who could have shown me this before I like, became an adult and found it for myself? And I wondered if you could talk more about that. I just think it's such a compelling idea. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I grew up in a very small town in Ohio and in the 80s and had no models of gay men and certainly no models of trans men, which I couldn't even conceptualize at, at that time. I didn't know anyone who was gay. What I remember is, is mostly just the homophobia, the jokes, you know, the fear of anyone who may be gay. And nobody was out of the closet in my town. Uh, so I didn't meet queer people in the queer community until um, I went away to college. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons it is important to sort of put these stories out there is although there's so much more visibility now, it's like kids, especially in rural areas, just don't have that sort of connection or those mentors. And what would my life looked like or how would it have been different if I'd had, you know, mentors who are queer living in my small town or living, you know, nearby who I could have connected with and had relationships with. But yeah, I mean, and in this case, I think because AIDS essentially, I mean, it wiped out an, almost an entire generation of queer men who were art, so many of them were artists and writers um, and creators. And um, it's just, it's such a loss for the queer community and such a loss for the world, I think, and how our lives would have looked different. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's something that I think is so especially remarkable about this book because I think, you know, in, in many ways, it seems to me that that this has been the past few years in kind of queer rural literature, like actually a lot has kind of been happening, you know, and it's, there's a lot of, um, you know, Silas's beautiful book Southernmost came out and there are publications like Queer Appalachia and Country Queers and like, it's sort of like, there's a new kind of um, ability to sort of, uh, have that narrative in a different way. Um, and so I think it, I think it's really remarkable that this book, I mean, I know I, I can't imagine that on top of all the stress of writing a novel, you were able to time it in any particular way. But I think that the amazing thing about it kind of existing in the world right now is like when there is more of that, you know, for a younger generation to look at, there's also this document that kind of urges them to look backward a little bit further. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that I, I hope the book connects with multi-generations and people who survived um, the AIDS crisis of the 80s, 90s, but I, I hope that it also can reach um, younger people. And as a professor, I have had students in Kentucky, you know, young students who know nothing of the AIDS crisis. It was, you know, not taught to them in school, I think, because then that would mean teachers would have to engage with um, homosexuality and queerness. And, and there's still, I think, so much shame surrounding AIDS, especially in rural um, areas. And so for them, I mean, they've talked to me about it. And, and, uh, and a lot of them feel um, angry and sort of betrayed that uh, this part of our identity and our history and kind of our collective memory has been um, kind of denied to them. They want to know about kind of mourning, right? The grief process of uh, people that you didn't even um, know, but are still a part of your um, community. But also I think too, uh, drawing on, ACT UP and activists, um, AIDS activists, and, and drawing on that kind of 
outrage and passion and um, activism. And I think now, especially, that feels really important, I guess, to sort of see where we come from and the strength that we can draw on. Right. Yeah. I kept I kept thinking as I was reading of this image that I first saw um, at the Whitney a couple years ago. They had a an exhibit like a history of protest art, and there there was a lot of of AIDS work in that show. But uh, a photograph that would just really destroyed me is this um, it's by this artist A. A. Bronson, and it's of a dear friend of his and a, an artist with whom he kind of was in this this collective together. Um, and it was taken like three hours after he died. Um, and it's so it's this huge, huge print. But also the artist Felix Parts was his name. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, have you seen this? Yeah, and he talked about how, A. Bronson talks about how kind of the sicker he got, the more colorful he got. And so like he's, you know, his body is is ravaged as you would expect. And, and you're very, you know, he puts it very large in front of you in a way that is really powerful and effective, but also he's just vibrant you know, around him, like his clothes and the bedding and, and everything around him. And it's, it's this really, um, when you talk about mourning, I think about that, this ability to kind of find that piece of it, and then for to, to be able to kind of make art out of it was something that, that really stuck with me a lot as I was reading this too. Yeah, thanks. That illustrates, I think, what was going on in that, that period of like this action, like activism, and protest and how that connected with art or they were sort of coming from the same places in a way. And, and yeah, and this idea of really using your bodies uh, because people were dying and, and many of those people were so young. Like the, the image you described made me think of, there's a video um, from ACT UP and I think it was uh, early nineties where um, the action was walking to the White House and, and, and sort of dumping the ashes of loved ones on the, the White House lawn. And it's just um, so empowering to watch, but also heartbreaking because um, people are carrying the ashes of their loved ones and there's so much grief and there's so much anger kind of feeding off of each other in this really brilliant and uh, powerful way. Yeah. Um, which which brings us actually to, to the protagonist of The Pretty Star, Brian, who... Um, you know, is dying of AIDS and, and has come back to his hometown, um, but is documenting everything on video. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I love that as, you know, again, I said I was so excited to talk about the things that that are so rich on so many levels. Like that is a, you know, as a, as a writing device, you get so much out of that and you're allowed to see so much of his history in such a clever way, but then also it's this really beautiful example of him kind of taking control of that narrative and recentering his body, saying like, you know, I'm here and and this is my story. Yeah, I think from a craft perspective, you know, it was certainly a device that came a little uh, later in writing the novel and, and figuring out how I wanted to frame Brian's sections. Um, uh-huh. Because I wanted to set them apart and I wanted to, cen- to center his story. Um, but I also knew that he was going to die, you know, and I don't think that's giving anything away. And so I had to think about that sort of first person voice and how was he going to narrate his story if he wasn't there at the end of it. And, um, and so the videos became this way of kind of framing them, but also giving 
I, what I hope is a, a way that he could speak directly to the viewers, which of course is the readers, um, in a way that I think it's Brian at his most kind of on, honest and vulnerable. I mean, there's still a level of performativity, performativity where he sort of um, he knows that he has an audience, but he can speak um, truths about his experiences that he can't do in dialogue with his family because there's so much sort of secrecy and, and, and shame and then nobody wants to talk about his sexuality or about his illness. Um, so yeah, I thought that the, the video camera gave him a way to speak very honestly and talk directly to the readers, but also create this sort of document, you know, for, for other people, a way to kind of control his own story and document kind of queer experience which I think is something people were doing during that time because they were dying and they were documenting for posterity and for a record and to kind of remember because they knew that like history is not usually kind to any sort of marginalized group and, and kind of rewrites their history or distorts their stories. So I hope that there was sort of an emotional power in that too. Absolutely. When you get glimpses of that, you know, the life that he had in New York and the, and the friends that he had and the, the kind of joy of that experience. Um, it is really powerful to, to, to have that described in that way. And I think like making it visual storytelling, I think you make a good point. Like he couldn't have those conversations with his family because they refused to have them. So yeah, I thought that was a really beautiful way to kind of, you're right, it's a performance, but it's also... I don't know, maybe it's a performance the way that like giving a lecture is a performance or something, you know, it's not like you're taking on another persona, you're just kind of amping yourself up a little bit. And you mentioned also at the, um, at the launch party that there was a videographer who, yeah. I don't know if he inspired Brian, but who you definitely, whose videos you looked at, um, this guy, Nelson Sullivan, um, who I kind of fell down a rabbit hole watching all of those and they're incredible. <laughs> right, that's the, that's the issue. I was looking them up the other day again. And yeah, I just was sucked into it for too many hours of watching his footage. <laughs> How did you find him? I, you know, I, I was, I think it was maybe a year into the novel and I was just trying to find more images of New York during the eighties. And I was looking at a lot of photographers like Ann Golden's work, but I was looking specifically for like queer New York in the eighties and, you know, I was just Googling and then found him and did fall into this rabbit hole because I think there's like 2000 hours or something of footage. Uh, I think he documented from like 87 to the very early nineties. What I love about them is he captures so much of just sort of the mundane. It's just him and his friends, right? Like walking around the East Village or Hell's Kitchen. It's also a very different New York, like pre-gentrified New York. And you see like a very young Rapal <laughs> flouncing around and being really beautiful and amazing. And, and they're just sort of living their lives and there's so much joy in just watching those. When I discovered those videos online, I'd already been thinking about Brian as some sort of visual artist and so sort of connected and spoke to me then. I think Brian's sections were the most difficult because I was trying to figure out, as I said, a way to sort of frame them and then using like a visual medium and ha having to figure out how to translate that into prose was you know something that I sort of grappled with and took many drafts to, to figure that out. 
but yes, I highly recommend those videos as sort of this powerful kind of documentation of New York. I watched his last video and toward the end of it, you know, he's like, it's he and a friend and they're going to walk his dog and they go to the pier and they come back and it's a cookout. It's like July 4th. And yeah, he pans around the backyard and I was like, that guy looks like RuPaul. And then I was like, oh my God, that is RuPaul. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, um, right. It's yeah. a really amazing document of just like, again, this kind of, um, this culture that like the mainstream was not particularly excited to acknowledge or, or to um, kind of let flourish. Um, I read some some description where he talks about it as like a, a community of misfits. In terms of craft, like, you know, I thought it was a really interesting choice to have, so, so the narration changes um, and we've got Brian and his little sister, Jess, and his mother, Sharon. Um, and very briefly, we have his father, um, but in the third person. Um, so we can kind of tackle that one separately. <laughs> but what made you decide that was kind of the right way for the story to, or how the story wanted to be told sort of with, with all of these different voices and not just Brian's, especially, you know, in, in terms of Brian wanting to control the narrative, like, you know, what do you think it brought to, to kind of add more voices? I mean, I think in one way it was just coming from like a writing and a craft perspective was I wanted to sort of challenge myself as a writer and the evening hour was written in third person limited to one character's perspective. So I wanted to sort of challenge myself and branch out and, and try to write this uh, multiple perspectives, but also the first person. I think I said that I started writing from Jess's um, point of view and then quickly followed with Brian's. And and Sharon's came into the story of a few months um, into writing it. And when Sharon's voice came into it, it kind of opened the novel up to me. I, I got a sense of like how this could work and the potential tension between these characters and the complexity of their kind of relationships. It is definitely Brian's story and he's at the center, but so much of it is about this family and how they, as you said, sort of refuse to engage um, with him or to talk about you know, his sexuality, his illness, as he is literally dying in front of them. And I think in some ways, I thought of them as kind of a microcosm for what was going on in America. And, and tried to tell that story through this very specific family. And so, I mean, I'm fascinated with stories about family and home and kind of what that looks like for a queer person and how complicated that is to sort of navigate. I, I had in my early notes, like that this would be sort of a family love story and a family looking at this family and thinking about how are they going to change or evolve or are they not? Like, are they going to completely fall apart and kind of follow each of them and their paths. Yeah, it's such a rich conflict because you articulate the complexity of their relationship so well, but even still, I kind of, as a reader, occasionally found myself wondering, like, why does he want to be here? Like, because he did cultivate this family in New York, you know, and and he talks so eloquently about how they care for each other. And, and I love Annie so much. And I like, I feel like she, you know, his best friend and his roommate who kind of comes in and is like, you know, I think I think in a lot of ways, you've got Brian and Annie and, and Letty, his grandmother, who takes really you know, kind of honest, good care of him. And and his sister is, is on a journey, I think, you know, she's young, but like, I think in a lot of ways, like, what 
I, I saw was kind of a difference between the people who could like, you know, be honest about what was in front of them and the people who couldn't like about him, but more broadly, can you just like live authentically in the world? Or is that too challenging, difficult, scary? Can you talk a little bit about fleshing out his desire to be there? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think part of it was a desire, this longing that so many people have to return to the physical home, right? Where you were raised, no matter how sort of complicated or fraught that is with um, tension. And Brian has a lot of fond memories of home as well. And so I was interested in that, exploring what that looks like for him. And I was thinking just as a a queer person who grew up in a small town and then left and lived in cities, sometimes missing that rural component and the nature as sort of a bomb or something that's sort of healing. And this family who did love you and does love you, um, although I think how conditions as well with that. Um, and, And I guess like this longing to feel fully accepted and loved and seen by the people who took care of you when you were young. Um, in some ways, I feel like he goes back um, almost to give them like a last chance to sort of reconcile. I mean, I think in some ways he's offering them this forgiveness. I mean, I'm always sort of interested in that homecoming story and what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So am I. And, you know, similarly, as somebody who grew up in a small town and then left and, and lived in cities, and it's a, it is a very complicated relationship, that idea of, I know something I think about a lot of my own work is like, you know, how can I be so pulled, like, you're so pulled to this place, but you don't necessarily want to want to be there, you know, want to like, make your own home there. And so like, what does that mean? And what does that look like? And what really resonated with me. And it's funny, just before we got on, I was on Instagram and Ashley Bryant Phillips, who's another amazing rural writer. She lives in North Carolina. She's also a Hub City author. Um, She posted something really beautiful about the book and I can't uh, remember exactly, but she said that, you know, she thinks it's really going to resonate with people who just like want to be seen and love for who they are. And I think that's so much of like, I think so many you know, not to universalize the story and and take away the very important specificity of it. But like, that is something that I think anybody who has left a place that they feel like don't understand them can get there, you know, that feeling of like, I'll just be right here. And I'll try as hard as I can. And can you just like, meet me there, you know, and something that I think that I would love for you to talk about, because I imagine that this was very difficult. You're very compassionate toward the characters who are not Brian in a way that I I think like, you know, in, in so many ways, I was thinking as just as I was reading, like, it's kind of a, it's almost a very clear cut good and evil story, right? It's like, you should be like, you should be taking care of your son, he's dying, you should put the shit aside and they and they can't, I would imagine it would be very difficult to like, empathize with them, but you do. Um, and not too much. Like, I think it's a good, you know, I, I think the I think you hit it very well. But um, can you talk about that? And was that something that was difficult in the writing of it, looking from these characters' perspectives, especially his parents? Yeah, I really, uh, with Sharon, the mother, I mean, I, I wanted to write her from a place of empathy and compassion and really to step into her shoes. I mean, I think that is another sort of challenge as a, as a fiction writer, is stepping out of your own perspective and 
trying to imagine deeply what this person's experience is like. And so with Sharon, you know, I could, I could see this um, woman who so loved her son, but was so terrified by what people would say or what people would think. I mean, she's so wrapped up in the fear of what the neighbors, um, how they will perceive them. And, and so much of it is coming from this place of shame, but also this, living in this very conservative place and growing up with that ideology and not understanding Brian's life at all. In this novel, it's it's a very specific queer experience, but it is that sort of black sheep story as well. And that so many of us um, feel as artists or writers or who leave our homes, um, especially from small towns, rural places and, and move to cities. And it's so hard for many of our families to even conceptualize like, what our lives look like and why we would do that. So I was trying to enter her from this kind of narrow place, like enter her mind from this narrow um, place that she hasn't, she hasn't traveled. She hasn't um, come across a lot of the ideas, the art, the stories that Brian has been exposed to. And she's, and she's comfortable in that space. So I had to think about like, what does that look like? feel very content and happy in this place that to me (laughs) would feel so uh, suffocating, I guess. And then I wanted to also think about her view of, I mean, I'm not a mother, I'm not a father, but your son is dying and the grief that she has to feel um, and how complicated that is, that she still can't let go of her homophobia or her perception of what she wants her son to be. Like she can't let go of that and how that, the complexity of that kind of as she's trying to grieve him as well or mourn him. It's like she gets close and I think she does kind of evolve, but by the end of the novel, but I, I didn't want that to be too easy. Right. Like I didn't want to like give her this easy way out or kind of let her off the hook. Right. And that's what I meant about like you empathize with them. Like you don't make it pat. You don't give everybody this sort of like complete, like come to Jesus. Well, that's not actually the right <laughs> phrase with this book in particular, but you know, does everybody get this, gets this awakening and you know, yeah. by the end, everything's tied up neatly. It's not like that. You know, I, I had moments where I was like grappling with my doubt as we do when we're writing. And that was something that I kept thinking about was like, I did not want to write the sort of sentimental, romanticized story, right? Like the sort of um, TV movie where everything ends up, everyone's reconciles with each other, they forgive each other, they reach this higher <laughs> um, place and are sort of um, this place of happiness in the end. And so I was trying to like write with compassion, but also resist that kind of story. I, I guess when you write with that, empathy and compassion, there's always the fear of it becoming sentimental, right? Because you are trying to write with your heart in, in this story. And so that was something like attention that I was always conscious of, you know, when I was going back and rereading drafts and thinking about how to fully capture these characters and all their humanity, but also not make it an easy, emotionally easy story. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. 
By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash W-M-F-A podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. This is your second novel. Your first novel was turned into a movie. So I definitely want to hear about going through that process. Like, were you were you involved in the screenwriting? I wasn't involved in the screenwriting at all. I really had no connection to the adaptation or the filming. But the director, Braden King, and the screenwriter, Elizabeth Palmore, you know, really kind of reached out to me. And because it was filmed in Kentucky, I had the privilege of, of going to set and spending some time there. Yeah, I was I was just wondering because um, you know, your your writing is so um there is something cinematic. You know, there is a kind of cinematic quality to your writing. And I'm not surprised that that it was adapted and that Brian, you know has this visual, um, is a visual storyteller. And, and I just, you know, I wondered if the, that link was something that you, um, you see, or you draw in your own work, you know, the getting inspiration from the screen or photography or mediums like that. I think so. I mean, I do love film and photography, especially and, and visual art. And I think it's just, um, I'm drawn to a lot of, uh, fiction too that feels very scenic and very physical and, and very textured and that's something I try to um, bring to my own work as a kind of sensory language and physicality um, for me I just I think it is it's a place that I feel more of a strength with my writing and so I try to challenge other parts of my writing where I don't feel as strong but I, I definitely enjoy kind of leaning into the scene and creating um, place and giving characters just a lot of physical texture. Right. And and when you're writing like kind of in the drafting process, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was just talking with another writer about the difference of how, you know, some writers sort of overwrite their first drafts and then some, and I, I very much underwrite and I have to go back in and kind mm-hmm. of flesh it out. And, and you've mentioned a couple of times now this, um, that you've gone, that you would go through the draft looking for specific things. And I wondered if you kind of have a targeted sort of revision process where you're like, now I'm going to, you know, or maybe is, is that texture kind of something that sort of comes out in the beginning too, and or how that all comes together. It may come out a little bit in the beginning, but certainly something I'm very conscious of when I'm returning to it and um, going through the drafts and the revision process. I mean, my process is not, it's very messy. And I wish that it was, I had a clearer sort of step-by-step um, writing process. I, I'm, I tend to fall in the camp of the overwriting. So when I started this novel, I had the basic idea that he would return home. I knew that he would go, there would be a moment where he would go swimming in the swimming pool. And I had sort of the characters, but I really didn't know uh, the arc of the novel or what it would look like until I just start writing scenes with the characters. I do a lot of like character work where I'm just kind of writing from the characters' perspectives and these sort of monologues and kind of filling up notebooks with just ideas and thoughts about them. Um, and I just write pages and pages and pages. <laughs> uh, and a lot of those pages get tossed and later. I mean, it's such a long 
<laughs> process, right? At least for me. And I know I always wished it were more efficient, and I, I, I <laughs> right? just love efficiency so much in every other aspect of my life. And then this is just like it's a really hard thing for me to reconcile. I know I, I feel the same, and I um, it just it takes me a, a long time, and I, I just kind of figure out what the story is. And in some ways, I feel like I'm growing more comfortable. Like I think part of becoming a writer is just like figuring out sort of how you work and being like, okay um, with that. So uh, I understand that I don't know what the story is until I'm really kind of writing into it, coming at it from different places. And I, I try to radically revise or I, um, you know, like I, I thought this was going to be in first person, but at different points I did try a few scenes or a few chapters in third person. Um, so I sort of have to, I, I can't just like think about it. I kind of have to try it out on the page, um, which again is not very efficient. That reminds me, can we jump back to the book for a second and, and actually talk about where Travis's section appears and, and just sort of, because it it is this, you know, it's towards the end, more distant. Can you talk a little bit about your decision to kind of put that in at all and then kind of the way that it the way that it manifested yeah yeah um Travis you know earlier in the process I considered writing from his point of view and I certainly did write some scenes from his perspective um just kind of in in trying to understand who he was as a character but in the end I just I didn't believe that he had a part in this story in the same way that Jess or Sharon do um, because he does love his son, but he um, cannot get past his own fears and prejudices and shame. And so he retreats um, and he's a very sort of stoic um, character. And I feel that he's so sort of impenetrable for um, Brian. Like he can't, um, engage with his father in this in the way, and I, I guess I wanted the readers to feel that too, to feel that kind of distance. And I think for so many gay men, and um, now who are stigmatized by their fathers, rejected by them, and that generation um, who died of AIDS, like so many, were not supported by their fathers, and um, and I wanted to kind of write that story. And I felt like the, I think it was a couple of years into the, the novel where I, I thought, I, I don't know, I think it sort of came to me, this image of him in, um, in a field kind of like grieving his son. And I felt like the third person, of course, added that level of um, distance that uh, the first person would be, would be more accessible to his interiority. Um, and I guess I also was, I wanted, Travis um, to sort of get this chance to to grieve or to speak about his son, son or to try to reach him in a moment that was kind of too late, you know, and almost to implicate the readers in a way of with that too, right? Of like waiting until it's too late to fully um, accept someone or see someone for their authentic. Because I think he's going to carry that regret and that grief um all of his life and and thinking that like how, do we all carry this in a way with this um, um generation of 
people who died of AIDS um, as, a, as a sort of a collective grief that we carry. Right, right. And of course, like, because it's very much not over also, this idea of like, you can't just kind of lock it up and be like, well, we experienced that. I can't believe it took me this long to ask, but we also have to talk about the music. Oh, yeah. It's, of course, um, it takes its title from a David Bowie song. And and David Bowie is is this kind of sort of idol through the book um, for both, I mean, less, less so for Jess, but, you know, it is this very common ground that Jess and, and Brian share. Um, and I was thinking, too, you know, I, I don't know much about how... Um, about David Bowie's kind of rise to fame in in the mainstream, but like I was thinking about how interesting it is that pop culture can be this kind of Trojan horse for sort of unaccepted identities. I guess would be a, a good kind of way to catch everything. Um, but you know, and thinking about um, ways to just sort of normalize, uh, not in a not in a way that dilutes anything, but just kind of make more prominent these different lifestyles. And, and I would love for you to talk a little bit about how, how Bowie became a part of this book. I think that I was just thinking about the music that Brian would listen to in the 70s. And I was just doing a lot of research and um, looking up sort of popular songs because he grew up in the 70s. And then of course, the 80s. And Bowie, of course, um, was just sort of this electric figure. He was very glamorous. And he embraces kind of gender fluidity and queerness and um, sexuality without shame. So, uh, and, and he could do that, as you said, in this way that is somewhat uh, sort of acceptable because he's this sort of rock pop star. And for Brian kind of showed him another way of living, another life that could kind of exist beyond um, his small town. And the music too just gave me a way to sort of tap into the characters. Um, it also was a kind of fun to write um, those parts of the novel because this is there's a lot of kind of heartbreak and sadness and um, tragedy in this story. And I was reading so many kind of oral histories and watching documentaries and stories about AIDS victims, and and so the music was sort of this kind of light and lightness and writing it. And then as I was working on the novel, it was 2016 when Bowie died and he was, um, the music was already in the pages, but when that happened, you know, it's like you're sort of, when you're working a novel and you're immersed in that world and you're paying attention to everything around you as possible connections uh, to the novel. Right. And so that there was just like all of Bowie's music and memorials and um, this kind of emotional outpouring that really resonated for me in writing this. And 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 then so I, I was going on like Reddit and reading all these comments about Bowie by people, uh, like just how much he meant to them. And and especially the people who were raised in like small towns and and like had never heard anything like this, you know, in the 70s. And it just like was so weird and strange and intimate for them. And it just kind of um, changed their lives. And I was imagining this voice like coming out of the radio and all these kids, these kind of misfits in rural places, like all over the country, kind of listening to his music and how exciting and and powerful that was. So yeah, so then I leaned into the Bowie and it gave me a way to kind of think about how I structured the novel even. And, and of course the, the title comes from that Bowie song. Right. Yeah. I, 
I remember like, you know, I, I've always liked Bowie and I frankly have become a bigger, a kind of more attentive listener of his since he died. But but I remember I was kind of surprised at how hard I took the news of his death because I was I, I considered myself just kind of a casual fan. Um, and I think that, you know, when the more I sat with it, it really was that kind of unapologetic, very authentic self, you know, this person who was like, doing all of these different things and just saying like, this is, you know, I don't have to explain this to you. I don't have to apologize for it. I don't have to feel bad about it. I don't have to feel ashamed about it. I think, yeah, he, he's a really powerful, or really exactly what you said. I think he's, he's a really powerful figure for many people who maybe needed that permission. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's sort of how the, the, the music kind of entered the novel and then, you know, and then for Jess too, as, as she's listening to a lot more sort of pop mainstream, but Madonna and Cyndi Lauper and Whitney Houston and Prince. So I was, you know, I created a soundtrack for it and I was constantly listening to that uh, whenever I wasn't writing. So if I was just walking around the neighborhood or, yeah. Can we talk about um, like how you research and write? Um, you know, you, you mentioned obviously watching a lot of documentaries and reading a lot of oral histories and is that stuff that you do kind of while you're writing beforehand um, to procrastinate writing because <laughs> it's so easy to do? I do. I love the research part of it. I think it's one of the kind of joys of being a fiction writer is sort of learning about something that I may not have experienced, you know, directly in my life. Um, and I just love feeling kind of immersed in um these other worlds. So, you know, for this book, I was certainly accessing a lot of my own kind of memories and interrogating my own memories of growing up in a small town in the 80s. But um, yeah, I did a lot of research, watching documentaries, a lot of heavy reading, and the band played on My Own Country, which is a book about uh, AIDS coming to Eastern Tennessee in, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and in articles, from that time period too. So reading like newspaper articles in the eighties, especially the early days when people didn't have any, have any idea really what AIDS um, was and sort of following that. I do it throughout. I mean, I do a lot of the heavy research in the beginning of my process, but throughout I was like ordering magazines off of eBay that were sort of like these life magazines or you know us news that were talking about um the aids epidemic um in addition to the like more academic reading that i was doing watching videos music videos <laughs> um listening to music you know that was some of the more of the the fun part of the research um and i also you know my research in the same way that my process of writing is not so efficient, but is very in-depth and detailed. You know, I will kind of read an article or a book and take really kind of um, detailed notes or sort of a highlight. And then I kind of type all those notes up. So I have these like documents. The research that's really interesting is sort of just like these almost like throwaway comments that someone like an I don't know, like a story on AIDS in People magazine, right? But it's like something that a neighbor said, you know, um, about how, well, the chickens are coming home to roost or, you know, um, this is punishment from God. And so like a line like that is something that um, feels is really invaluable and kind of sticks with me because then it opens up, I don't know, another 
window into my novel and and then, then I can think about like people in the town and the neighbors. Um, so yeah, so I, I really try to immerse myself as much as possible in the research. I think something that I've definitely been trying to kind of work on for myself is like following my intuition when I see things like that. And like, there's that little flash and you're like, I don't know why I'm drawn to this, but I'm just going to keep it and, and we'll see what happens out of it. Um, yeah. I think those, those moments are really important. Yeah. Yeah. So the last question I like to ask is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? What does creative satisfaction look like? Mm. Mm. I guess I feel sort of most satisfied creatively and just sort of alive um, when I am working on a, a project, my novel or a short story, and just feel immersed in that, in the language and in the page, just like one scene or, or even a sentence, you know, when I feel like I can get to that, that sentence to the place where um, I can read it and reread it and reread it. And I finally, I don't need to make any sort of edits to it when it just feels like it sort of sings on the page and embodies what I am hearing in my head and visualizing and trying to convey with language and prose. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Thank you so much for taking the time today and bearing with me for the little technical foibles at the beginning. Um, it was really great talking to you. Thank you so much. Those are such um, fantastic questions. It was great talking to you. And congratulations again, Carter. I really loved it. It's really tremendous. Um, I'm sorry you can't have a real IRL book tour, but I hope, you get, <laughs> I hope you get lots of good celebration out of it. Thank you. It's been great so far. So. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on iTunes to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at wmfapodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at cfballastier, or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Andy Cubis. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the Lit Hub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved. <laughs>